0: The following audio is from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Acts is available at actschurchleander.com.
1: In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you of this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he had kept for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for 5 months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people.
0: Heavenly Father, we ask you to speak. Uh, we're excited to see what you got to say. As we again enter the season of Advent, a season of waiting, uh, Lord, uh, that we get drawn closer to you uh, and a God who still moves. Say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. So I'm going to draw back the curtain a little bit on what it's like to be a pastor around time. Cause typically when it comes to Sunday mornings, right, you create sermon series and we can talk about how to read the Bible or entrusted with the future or a hundred other different things. But twice a year, your hands are handcuffed. And at Christmas time, if you don't talk about the birth of Jesus, you are just a bad pastor. And at Easter time, if you do not talk about the resurrection and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, again, you're just a bad pastor. And so there becomes this. Uh, year in, year out. What am I going to talk about this year? What angle do I want to go on? And when you first come out of seminary, when you first become a pastor, you got all these ideas, right? You've got all these different ways you can do it. But then year after year, you're like, what am I going to talk about? Well, this year I kind of threw myself a softball. I said, you know what? We're going to do the nativity because everyone knows what the nativity is. It's got all the major stories. We're good to go. And so this was going to be like my softball to Pastor Josh go team, right? Well, our graphic designer doesn't like softballs. Uh, and so his response, uh, Jesse Gumto, he's like, you know, the word nativity comes from the word native. Because what if we did a Texas Christmas native theme? And I'm like, that is such a better idea than mine. And so we went with that, right? But this understanding, and this actually kind of blew my mind. I had never put together nativity comes from the Latin word native, so where we get Native Americans, it's where we would get Native Texans, right? This idea of being indigenous to a culture, being born into a culture, or, in what we'd say in English, going native, right, where you go someplace and you would say, all right, now, now I'm going to adopt these people as my own, their problems, their obstacles, I'm going to help with those, right, to become native. Well, the word nativity actually comes from that. And so, when we talk about the Nativity, really what we're talking about is this idea that God went native to humanity. And we see this in Scripture. John 1 says it really clearly, where he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling there is the same word you would use to go and pitch a tent or to tabernacle. The tabernacle was where God used to dwell. And when John starts off his gospel talking about the birth of Jesus and how Jesus came and why Jesus came, he says, the word came to tabernacle, to pitch his tent, to do life with humanity. And so really, the nativity makes a lot of sense. And so this series, we're really going to be looking at what does it look like for a God who shows up? To have a God who was willing to go native for humanity. Because God didn't need to, right? He is God. He knows everything. He sees everything. But he wanted us to experience, he wanted us to realize how far he would go to have a relationship with us. He wanted us to be able to touch him, to be able to see him, to be able to become friends with him. And that is the story of Jesus. And that is the story of the Nativity. But oftentimes, when it comes to the Nativity, we miss the backstory. We oversimplify what happens because when you read the Bible and you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you go from Malachi, last chapter, to Matthew 1, and you flip one page and it happens really quickly. It didn't happen so quickly for the Israelites. You see, the background of Jesus' birth was God had created a people for himself. They were called Israel. And I love that God names them Israel because Israel literally means those who wrestle with God. And I don't know about you, but the guy I see in the mirror every morning regularly wrestles with God, right? I want my way. I want this thing to happen. I want this thing to happen. I want this person to do what I want them to do. And when it doesn't go my way, me and God, we start duking it out, right? And that's what God names his people. He's like, you are going to be my people. I'm going to be your God, but you are going to wrestle with me. And his people in the Old Testament wrestle with him. Eventually, he gives them their own land, he gives them a king, and things go all right for a little bit, but eventually they realize, you know, we like this God, but the Egyptians, they've got some pretty rocking gods too, and the Babylonians, they've got some good ones, and so what they end up doing is they start keeping one God, but then adding to their collection, right? And I think as Christians, again, this is something that we all can fall into, and we can be like, all right, God, I believe in you, but I've also got my bank account and I've got my job, and I've got my physical well-being, and we've got all these different things that we can put our trust in. Because that's what idolatry is. At its very root, it means what do you place your faith in? And Israelites, pre-Jesus, about 700 years before Jesus, they started collecting gods. They broke the covenant, They they broke the promise between God and his people. And so... God said there is going to be discipline for this. This comes from Isaiah. And it says, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled, for all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel. You see, Israel had gotten really big. They were a prosperous nation. Other nations would come from all over the world just to look at their architecture, just to see their palaces and their temples. The arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and all the idols will disappear. So God had said, because of your idolatry, discipline is coming. Other nations are going to come and they're going to attack and they're going to pillage and they're going to take away your money. And they're going to take away all the idols. There's going to be discipline that's coming. And that's part of the message of the prophets. And again, this isn't happening like a month before Jesus shows up or a year before Jesus shows up or even a generation before Jesus shows up. No, this is happening centuries and centuries and centuries. In fact, there's about 400 years between the last prophet and Jesus coming. And in that 400 years... God is silent. Babylonian comes. Persia comes. Greece and Rome come. And for over 400 years, the Israelites, the last thing they heard from God was discipline is coming. 400 years of silence. 400 years of waiting. God, why are you allowing this to happen? And again, that It's kind of my story. I mean, I'm not 400 years old, so I haven't had that long. But there are times in my life where there's pain, or there's pain in my family, or there's pain in my community. And the question is, God, are you still up there? Why aren't you talking? Why aren't you acting? Why aren't you moving? And that's that gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was silence. There was quiet. But what you see is that God regularly uses Old Testament situations to foreshadow what he's going to do through Jesus. Because this wasn't the first time God had been silent. In fact, what you see is in Egypt, it's almost the exact same amount of time that Israelites were slaves in Egypt, where they were in bondage, where they were in captivity, where it actually says that God was silent, not not acting, but he wasn't responding directly like he did in the Old Testament. It's that same length of time when they start trusting in other gods. Right? There's this echo of, this happened once, and I rescued you. This is happening again, and I'm going to rescue you. But he does it again in Jesus, and a really good example of this comes from Leviticus. And I know Leviticus is everyone's favorite book. If you ever read through Leviticus, it talks a lot about the, sacrifice, the sacrificial system. There's a lot of blood, and there's a lot of like wiping blood on yourself and doing a weird dance. It's a strange book, right? But there's some really good stuff in Leviticus, and some really good foreshadowing of this happened in the past, to show what was going to happen in Jesus. And the idea of the scapegoat is an excellent example of this. This is from Leviticus 16. It says, When Aaron had finished making atonement for the holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. And he is to lay both hands on the head of the goat and confess all of, its, all of the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, those who wrestle with God, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He will then send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. Once a year, the people of Israelites were to come together and to bring in a scapegoat. And what they would do is they would pray all and confess all of the sins of the entire nation. And they would place it on this goat's head. And then they would send this goat out of the city. Does that story seem vaguely familiar for you? the Old Testament sacrificial system was pointing to what Jesus was going to do. To take the sins of the whole world, all our brokenness, all the times where I wrestle with God, all the times where I want to have other idols, I want to trust in other things. He goes, no, all of it's going to go away. And it was all pointing to Jesus. And so in a very real way, the gap between the Israelites in Egypt and slaves there, and the gap, again, it's God foreshadowing what he's going to do. He's about to rescue his people in a new and beautiful way. And the people, wow, I don't know what I was going for that. Uh, they were waiting, again, on a promise. I think that's what that's meant to be. I don't know if I was hungry when this came on. If you're listening on the podcast, it says on the screen, the people were again eating on a promise. I, I don't know what that is. We're going to go with they were waiting on a promise. There was another promise in the Old Testament, another promise in the prophets that, yes, this discipline was coming. This pain was coming. But a hero would also come. Someone who would come to restore, to bring peace, to bring prosperity back to God's people. And again, this is from Isaiah. Isaiah 9 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Again, I I see myself here. There are times when I'm walking in darkness. I'm like, God, what are you up to? What are you doing? On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy will be fuel for the fire. All the warriors' garments, all the weapons, because it's all going to go away. We're not going to need it anymore. Why? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, for you see the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. They had been waiting on the hero. Isaiah promised two things. The prophets promised two things. One, discipline for trusting in other gods. And two, a promise of a Messiah, of a wonderful counselor, or a prince of peace who's going to change the game, who's going to change the world, who's going to bring apart something very new. And that's the setup for the nativity. And what's interesting is it doesn't start with Jesus. Some of the Gospels do, and that makes sense. But for Luke, he wanted to make sure all the promises were accounted for. And there was one other promise in Isaiah, in the prophets, about what would happen before this Messiah came. And it was that someone in the spirit and the power of Elijah would show up first. That there was going to be a herald that would go before the hero, that would go before the king, that would go before this wonderful counselor to help draw people back to God. And that's the birth of John the Baptist. You see this in Luke. And the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Why? For he will be a sight, a great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or fermented drink. I'm glad I wasn't born John the Baptist. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for God. The nativity starts with God preparing the way for what he's going to do in Jesus. And Again, I can identify with this because often God is preparing the way in my life for what he ultimately wants me to do, where he ultimately wants me to go, what he ultimately wants me to learn. In the nativity, we see a God who re-enters the story in a new and powerful and native way, right? And we also realize that God wasn't procrastinating. He wasn't up there withholding answers to prayer because he was vindictive. He wasn't not listening to his people when they cried out, when Babylon came or Greece came or Persia came. When they had concerns or worries, he wasn't being silent because he was mean. What he was doing was playing the long game. You see, in Greek, there are two words for time. Chronos, time, which is where we get chronological, chronologic chronological time from, right? So what time is it? Well, it is 10 to noon. That's what time it is. But they also had kairos, which meant appointed time. It meant the divine time. It meant the right time for something to happen. And God is all about kairos time. He's all about making sure that at the right moment, when the most good will be done, when the most will be able to hear about who Jesus is and who the Messiah is and how he has fought for them and has gone native to them, that's when he would send the hero into the story. And this is all over scripture. It's from Galatians 4. It says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption to sonship. At the right time, the exact moment when God knew his people needed it, he sends Jesus to free those in slavery, to free those in bondage from idolatry, from our own worst thinking, from our own brokenness. He says, I'm going to send my son to redeem and to create new sons and daughters of God. This Kairos time, this right time, is all over Scripture. Again, for me, there's comfort there. For the church, there's comfort there that God is still working, and that at the right time He is going to move, He is going to enter the story in a new and beautiful way. Romans 8 puts it this way. He says, "He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously also, along with him?" graciously give us all things. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he's saying, guys, if God is willing to sacrifice his son to be in relationship with you, to make you right with God, to start repairing the world, he's going to give you everything else. The down payment was in the blood and body of his son. He goes, guys, if he's willing to go that far, the rest of it's rather small. He's going to fulfill, he's going to show up. He's not done yet. You see, the nativity is the story of a God who goes native and says, these people's problems are now my problems. These people's challenges, brokenness, hurts, they're now my challenges and brokenness and hurt. And then he shows up and he starts repairing them. And the sick are healed. Those without community are given a new family and faith. And the deep darkness in each of us, sin, brokenness, all of that gets placed on the scapegoat. All of that gets placed on Christ. Then God says, send that away. My children are not clean. They're beautiful. They belong to me and I to them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. We're not going to go into a time of confession, Where we're going to be honest to God and say, you know what? Sometimes we're still Israel. We still wrestle with you. We still want our way or no way. But then we're going to encounter God, a native God, in the Lord's Supper. He says, take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood. This is me being human for you. And God shows up and he does life for us. He fights for us. And then he sends us out and he goes, okay, now that you've encountered me, I want you to be natives in your community. I want you to be champions for your community and for your neighbors and for your families. You to, as Jesus said, for as the Father sent me, now I am sending you. But first, the time of confession. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for being a God who fights for us, for being a God who shows up, for being a God who... came down not because you needed to know what we felt like, but so we could feel you and touch you and talk to you. Lord, we still need that kind of God in our lives because our own worst thinking gets in the way a lot. Lord, we come before you now asking for forgiveness, asking for grace. We come before you now asking for your love that transcends all understanding to envelop us. that's all in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.